possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Of shows renewed in May. Uh, having to reduce their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the AMP Podcast. We've got an exciting lineup for you today. We're going to be hearing from Ed Border. He's going to be talking about a brand new Ampere metric that looks at the popularity of film and TV titles. Hannah Walsh is going to be taking us through the latest trends in Western European advertising. Jack Genovese will then look at the US market and the outlook for advertising there. And then we'll be finishing up with Piers Harding Rolls, who will be talking about the latest forecasts on the game console market. My name is Guy Bisson. I'll be asking the questions today. Let's kick off with you, Ed. Um, This is a brand new metric that you and your team have developed, and it focuses in on the popularity of titles. Tell us about the metric and how you've come up with it. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Guy. Um, So I suppose the the goal behind what we're trying to achieve uh, with this new metric is we're trying to understand which titles are really uh, driving consumer interest uh, at any given moment. Uh, So we've essentially created a score from zero to 100 that rates each title that we track in our service each month. Um, We're looking, I guess, in a sense to capture how popular something is. So what you're looking at there is both to understand, I suppose, how many people uh, watched something or watched each title, and also then to understand how engaged they were with it. Um, You can have different types of popularity, people who who watch a title a lot, but it isn't necessarily enjoyed, and then titles that may not have such a big audience, but are are rewatched a lot over time. Um, but the challenge, I suppose, in trying to do that and the challenge that, that many people have come up against is that particularly as S4 platforms become an increasing form of uh, consumption for content, a lot of uh, data on, on viewing is, is walled off. Uh, so essentially, it's very hard to understand what the most popular titles are um, on these kind of new VOD platforms and then what's being watched the most, uh, which means that what we've essentially been doing is try to look at instead of the, the signal, so exactly what's being watched and when, to look at the noise um, that comes through. So how many people are searching for different titles on different websites? How are they performing in transactional charts? How are they doing at box office? All of those different things that would indicate that a title has a big audience and is being consumed and, and popular at a given point in time. We're then collecting that, aggregating it for each title we cover and building it all together to generate that kind of global popularity score. This can then kind of be combined with all the other data that we cover. So what's available on different platforms on different TV channels, different VOD services all throughout the world. And lets us do things like try to understand who's buying or selling the most popular content. How's it being produced? Are there any trends in relations to genres? How does it vary over time? And even things like how long is it being licensed for? So in combination with our existing critical rating, that's a really powerful new way of looking at titles. Um, You're finishing up a report, I think, Ed. And one one of the things that uh, I've seen already in that report is that a number of titles have, I guess, what you call persistent popularity. Now, um, we all know Friends is perennially popular, um, but what are some of the other titles that you've found that have that longevity of success? Yeah, that's right. So um, just, just to sort of note, I suppose, on this uh, persistent popular, we've been, we've been looking essentially at trying to look at uh, which titles have high levels of popularity over a sort of five-year period 
to try kind of and better understand the difference between short-term and long-term uh, popularity. I think in the past, it's sort of, there's been a lot of attention to titles like Friends or The Walking Dead, which have really struck huge deals um, with Netflix buying that, those titles off um, different providers in, in the US. And we kind of wanted to understand how many of these titles there were and which ones really mattered. Uh, so we identified about 85 titles um, sort of that were popular globally over the past five years consistently. Um, that's both movies and TV series. And we found that about 80% of these were from the big five US studios. Um, so from Disney, Warner, NBC, uh, Sony, and Viacom CBS. I suppose regarding your, your specific question on Friends, uh, the first thing we found is that Friends really is an anomaly um, in our data. Um, there were only actually 10 titles released prior to 2000, which sort of made our list, were, were effectively still popular even now, continuously. Um, so it shows that it is really difficult to achieve that. And of those titles released before 2000, Friends is by far the most popular now. So it really is the only title that was released a long time ago. And yet its popularity is comparable to some of the biggest hits even today. Um, the, the, only, the only title that really comes close was The Simpsons in terms of any kind of similarity. Uh, so it's easy to understand, I guess, why Friends is so expensive and why it is such a kind of important set of rights to own um, in different countries around the world. Um, but we did have some other findings and we did we did see some interesting patterns in the other titles that we identified. Uh, we found that TV series definitely age better than movies. Um, the vast majority, 90% plus of titles in our list were TV series, uh, partly due to the length, partly due to the rewatch factor. Uh, and we found that Disney and Warner Media really dominate uh, ownership of these assets. So between them, they account for, I believe, around 60% of the titles we identified. And I think the strength here lies in the kind of uh, variety of, of different companies that they've bought and that they own. Um, so to use Disney as an example, uh, most of its popular content pre-2000 comes via the Fox acquisition. Uh, so titles like The X-Files or The Simpsons. Uh, most of its popular content between about 2000 in the 2000s uh, comes from its ABC network content. So Lost or, or Grey's Anatomy. And then its more recent content from 2010 onwards comes from its kind of Star Wars and Marvel purchases. So the kind of superhero slash sci-fi and fantasy IP that it's been developing. And there's also a similar story with, with Warner as well, which uh, sort of has both HBO content, uh, content via the CW, and then also DC Universe content. So a lot of different sources appealing to a lot of different demographics that really build up very wide catalogs of valuable long-term titles. So was there a temptation to call the report uh, the one where Ed measures popularity? I actually went with uh, the Friends Zone, uh, making an early run for Ampere's Pun of the Year Award. Um, excellent, excellent. Well, we'll certainly uh, look at that at come Christmas when the awards come around. Um, Netflix, though, where, where did Netflix original sit in this? Because you mentioned 60% um, of the most popular studio titles. So, so what's happening with Netflix? Um, so yeah, the, the thing with Netflix is that the majority of its original series and movies are, are currently less than five years old, so they wouldn't make the list as it stands. They haven't had a long enough period of time to prove, I suppose, or demonstrate that they do have that uh, sort of long-term retention of, of value. Um, but we did notice this, and then the second kind of layer of analysis that we run was was essentially with this in mind. So what we did was we looked at all of the titles that we thought could become popular in the long term. So essentially titles that have been popular since release, but haven't been available for five years. And then we forecasted forward based on the trends in their popularity. Um, so that meant that some titles, uh, for example, The Crown, which, which uh, is nearly four and a half years old and is consistently very popular, is almost certain to eventually join our list and, and become a long-term asset. And equally, there were other titles, such as, for example, Uncut Gems, that have only been available for a year and have almost dropped out of the, the kind of running already uh, with, with popularity massively decreasing. So they're almost certain to not join our list. 
uh, we ran the numbers. Uh, we, we forecasted forward for each title in our list. And we found that there were about 50 titles that were released in the past five years that we would expect to become uh, persistent, uh, to use the term that you used, uh, that we would expect to become sort of long-term valuable uh, assets and that sort of retain uh, consumer interest. Um, and we found that Netflix uh, has about a quarter of these, so about 13 of these titles, uh, which is identical to Disney and Warner. Um, so effectively, what we kind of saw there is, is how valuable and how quickly Netflix has become a major producer of, of really important long-term content. It's essentially level now over the last five years in terms of producing the next wave of these major long-term hits with Disney and Warner, who currently dominate the market for, for sort of pre-2015 releases. Um, so we, we will see in the next five years, many of these Netflix titles start to make their way into the list as we sort of, you know, revise and update this report. So effectively already a, a major studio to be reckoned with in, in, in the form of Netflix. Um, but talking of studios, uh, obviously they've been licensing content internationally for a very long time and they don't have all of their content available in all of their markets. And yet they have these incredibly popular titles. How, how are they using those strategically with regard to their own streaming services? I think the answer to that is is fairly mixed, honestly, depending on the studio and and the market. Um, I think the general trend, if you look at it from a really high high perspective, is that studios are bringing more of the content in house. Uh, I mean, the recent um, sort of Disney Plus uh, star um, sort of expansion internationally saw a lot of Fox content brought in house onto Disney Plus platforms and away from particularly pay TV platforms and Netflix in those markets. But there are still nuances depending on the studio and depending uh, on the market where we're still seeing quite a bit of licensing. Um, so I, I think, for example, in that case, Warner is, is an interesting example. In the US, it certainly has brought about half of its really popular titles, so about half of the 25 we identified into HBO Max, and it has been adding them slowly over the year. But a number of the releases, particularly sort of ones from the CW and some of its uh, TV series, um, including Arrow or Gilmore Girls, uh, still remain available via Netflix. And there are other instances of titles where it's essentially uh, having sort of the best of both worlds. So licensing via HBO Max, but also licensing to other platforms too and making them available via multiple platforms in the US. Uh, then internationally, we tend to see uh, Warner strike deals with the major pay TV operators in each market. So for example, Sky in the UK or Foxtel in Australia, uh, whereas we're seeing Disney Plus increasingly uh, bringing those in-house, as I mentioned, via the sort of Disney Plus star launch. Uh, finally, I suppose you have the, the final category, which is the other uh, major studios and other kind of licenses of big content, so NBC, Sony, and Viacom. And we're seeing a mix there as well. I think we're seeing in the US, both Peacock and Viacom CBS have launched their own SVOD services, and we're making content available via those. But equally, you're seeing Sony, uh, Lionsgate, MGM uh, striking deals directly, and it's typically Netflix and Amazon Prime that are picking these up and offering international distribution. So the answer, I suppose, is that there's a real mix going on with probably Disney at one end of the spectrum, really bringing everything in-house. Companies like Warner and NBC in the middle, um, sort of doing a bit of both depending on the market and then sort of a Sony at, at the other end sort of licensing its titles generally through Netflix um, and making it available through other platforms. Thanks Ed. I mean that's a it's a really fascinating metric and I know that we've had a lot of interest in it so uh, dive into that metric more if you have uh, access to our services. Thanks very much Ed. Um, Hannah advertising in the year of COVID. We knew it was going to be bad, uh, but how bad was it in Western Europe? 
Yeah, so prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, we had forecast the Western Europe TV ad market to decline by about 2% compared to 2019. Um, due to the negative effects of the pandemic, um, both on retail sales and advertising spend, the TV advertising revenue across Western Europe actually saw a decline of 15% in 2020, which is the largest year-on-year decline we've seen in the past 20 years, um, including the financial crash in 2009, during which we saw declines of 11% year-on-year. The European economies were worse hit in the second quarter of 2020 due to the introduction and the lengthening of local lockdowns. Uh, So we saw declines of 39% year on year as advertisers began to pull campaigns then. then. I'm surprised um, that the gap between 2009 and and 2020 wasn't even bigger, actually, because uh, 11% versus 15%. But I guess there was a shift of spend to products that people still needed to buy despite being in in lockdown. But I understand different countries in Europe fared differently. So some some were worst hit than others. What sort of trends were you picking up there? So what we saw is Germany and uh, the Scandinavian markets actually fared best throughout 2020 due to the early containment of the virus in those markets. So retail sales and consumer confidence recovered quite quickly after the first national lockdown with turnover and retail sales actually increasing year on year in both Germany and Scandinavian markets. Um, TV advertising revenue also began to recover after the first lockdown restrictions began to ease. However, only a handful of companies across Western Europe saw year on year increases in TV advertising revenue in the last quarter of the year. So those were RTL and ProSieben in Germany, Atris Media in Spain and TF1 in France. Um, unfortunately, the remaining broadcasters in the region didn't see enough growth to outperform the severe declines seen in the second quarter of 2020. I was browsing the ITV results the other day and I noticed that they reported quite a, a, an uptick in Q4. And I understand quite a few broadcasters uh, saw a similar trend with ad spend picking up significantly right towards the end of the year. How are they going to be sustained? Are we going to see uh, grace through 2021 and a a big pickup? So we are actually currently expecting a year-on-year decline in the first quarter of 2021 due to the lengthening of lockdown restrictions across Europe, so caused by uh, the discovery of new COVID-19 variants and also the slow vaccine rollout throughout the region. However, we are expecting a strong year-on-year recovery to be seen in the second quarter uh, with regard to TV advertising revenue. So we're expecting uh, at the moment an 8.5% year-on-year increase in 2021 as a whole. So 8% this year on the back of minus 15% last year and the pickup from Q2. That is the outlook for advertising in Western Europe. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, Jack, the US ad market fared a little better than Europe, I believe, uh, during 2020. What, what are the factors that, that led to that? Yes. Um, well, I think there are two main, two main elements to that. Uh, one is that the US economy was slightly more resilient um, if compared to most countries in Europe. Uh, the GDP of the United States declined by 3.4% in 2020 compared to 6 to 12% across the largest European countries. And in particular, in the second half of the year, uh, the US showed strong signs of, uh, well, a stronger than expected recovery. 
Um, but a second element, and it's something that actually has been referred to by several broadcasters in their 10Ks, was the US presidential campaign itself. So according to multiple sources, political TV advertising reached uh, a new high in uh, 2020. Um, and uh, uh, some broadcasters benefited particularly from that. There's the case of Fox, which uh, since selling its studio assets to Disney in 2019, is now much more dependent on advertising around news and sports programming for its revenues than its direct competitors. And Fox, so its um, uh, Q4 TV advertising revenues in 2020 actually grow with respect to the same period in 2019 by a whopping 14%. Uh, similarly, uh, Turner, which on CNN, so Q4 revenues decline by just, uh, quote unquote, 1%. And uh, obviously, um, the, the, the signs point to these results being uh, significantly helped by political advertising expenditure and higher levels of of news consumption around the elections. Despite that, however, we estimate that the market declined by just over 9% over the course of the of the year as a result of the disastrous first half that uh, all broadcasters experienced. And uh, in fact, none of the broadcasters that we cover in our product um, saw any year-on-year -year growth in TV advertising for the whole year of 2020. Uh, amazing when minus 9% seems like a good good performance benchmarked against Europe. But um, you, you mentioned the uh, the presidential elections um, last year, but this year we've also got a big event, um, and that is the Olympics. Now, my understanding is that the uh, outlook is that international visitors will not be allowed to attend Tokyo, but locals will be. But do you think that's going to have an impact on viewing and thus the potential uplift to advertising that that would otherwise create. Yes, that's correct. And in fact, just last week, the Olympic Organising Committee announced that um, overseas spectators will be banned from attending the Tokyo Olympics um, due to risks associated with COVID-19. However, we, we don't think that that will have a huge impact on ratings. The lack of US fans in, in, in stadia in Tokyo uh, obviously will mean that uh, for US audiences, the only way to follow uh, live coverage of the events will be on TV, and that is likely to have a positive impact um, on, on the ratings. However, we suspect that that will only be marginal. Similarly, we, we don't think that the lack of US fans in Stadia in Tokyo will impact um, the revenue, advertising revenues generated from the broadcasting of the, of the events. Last year in March, in fact, before the event was the, the, the event was even postponed to 2021, NBC announced that it had already sold 90% of its national advertising inventory for the Tokyo Olympics for a total record amount of 1.25 billion dollars. NBC Universal is obviously going to be the the company that's going to benefit the most from the scheduling of the Olympics in 2021. Uh, and data from Ampere's market content product shows that, on average, um, NBC's TV advertising revenues on a year when the Summer Olympics are held are 15% higher than in the year that immediately preceded it. For 2021, we predict that NBC's TV advertising will grow by 21% compared to 2020, which of course was 
marred by the pandemic. So to, to give a fairer comparison, we expect NBC to generate 8% more in TV advertising revenue than it did in 2019. So a decent boost from the Olympics then, Jack, and especially for NBC. But what's the overall outlook for the U.S. ad market this year? Well, overall, we expect uh, the U.S. TV advertising market to grow by 11% in 2021, uh, reaching $59 billion. And that is just about 1% higher than the TV advertising revenue that U.S. broadcasters generated in 2019. As you mentioned, the Olympics uh, will drive some of that growth. Uh, but it's also worth noting that uh, in the first few months of the year, we've seen a continuation of some of the trends seen at the end of 2020, especially around news consumption and political advertising spending. For instance, there's been um, a senatorial runoff race in uh, Georgia. Um, the main reasons why we are reasonably optimistic about the TV advertising uh, market in the US uh, are also uh, related to the overall economic growth that is expected for 2021. Uh, in fact, the, the recent strong signs of recovery have led institutions like the IMF and the OECD to revise upwards their most recent forecasts for uh, US GDP. Of course, we will monitor key economic indicators and uh, the effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout to adjust our forecast should that be needed. So things changing constantly, of course, but for now, the outlook is looking fairly positive. It's nice to hear a bit of positive news after a year of so much bad news. Um, thanks very much, Jack. So, Piers, you've got a new uh, piece of analysis out on the console market, and I believe that uh, a, a record has been reached in terms of uh, value. Was that driven largely by COVID or were there other factors that have driven that growth in, in the console market in particular? Uh, thanks, Kai. Yeah. Uh, so the market reached 53.9 billion. That's the first time it's broached 50 billion. And that's in consumer spend across hardware, software and services related to games consoles. And that's that's a global number. Um, yeah, the, so the pandemic, I think, has been the major driving force really for last year. I think I estimate that it's probably contributed over 10%, you know, something in the sort of 10 to 12% uh, range of growth. Um, so the year-on-year -year growth is 19%, and I think the pandemic's contributed, you know, a majority of that growth in effect. There are other factors. So last year was a great year for particular uh, software releases. So the standout software release from Nintendo's product, the Nintendo Switch, which is kind of in the meat of its cycle right now. It's it's at the sort of top end of its cycle. It's it's selling the most products at the moment. Uh, was Animal Crossing, which was an exclusive title for that platform, and it sold over 30 million units through to consumers over about three quarters of the year. Um, so that is a tremendous uh, result for Nintendo, but also meant that people were spending more time inside, and this game really captured the kind of um, social vibe of gaming, but also uh, was a you know perfect fit really for the sort of people that were spending a lot of time at home. 
So there was a combination of great software alongside the pandemic. And then there was other factors like the release of the new consoles. So PlayStation 5 and also Xbox Series S and X, both those uh, consoles were released towards the end of last year and they've performed pretty well in terms of hardware sales. So that's pushed up the hardware spending. Uh, we've also had growth in subscription services, so people spending more on content subscription services like Xbox Game Pass, which is on a growth, strong growth trajectory anyway outside of the pandemic. Um, represents really great value for the consumer and people have been recognizing that and spending more money on that. And then that whole, there's this whole sort of background transition within the space where uh, consumers are spending more on service-based games and also free experiences and, and spending money within uh, within games. So on recur, what we describe as recurring um, monetization on in-game currency and in-game items. And that's become a much more dominant monetization strategy within the console space. And so we're seeing a sort of upwards trajectory in terms of monetization anyway, um, outside of the pandemic. But definitely the pandemic has been the major uh, factor, I would say. And browsing through the the commentary you put with your analysis, um, I, I was interested to read about the different console shares as a non-gamer. Um, I understand Nintendo is on top uh, over Microsoft and, and Sony. Is that right? Yeah, so the older... Um, generation of consoles, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One in its various guises as an Xbox One S and then there's a more powerful uh, device, the Xbox One X. They were at the end of their cycles. We've had the new um, next generation of consoles introduced at the end of last year. The Switch has a different, is in a different kind of um, dynamic of its life cycle. It was introduced later and is selling very well at the moment. It's sort of, the, uh, as I was saying, at the high point of its cycle. So it sold through to consumers over 26 million units globally uh, last year, and that outsold every other device that was available on the market, uh, even with the introduction of new consoles, which were actually relatively supply-constrained towards the end of the year, even though basically they all sold out, um, but there was only um, you know a few million of each device available to buy. Um, so even though there was strong demand there, Nintendo's been in the in the strongest position, obviously, over the whole year, and it's 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 had very strong sales because of its content offer, but also because people have been you know desperate to get hold of devices while they've been stuck at home. Well, I have to admit, the last time I bought a game, uh, it featured Lara Croft, so that gives you an idea of when it was. But wh- one of the things you talk about is um, the the game side of the console market and and I was surprised that 30% is still generated from physical sales of of, of actual uh, console games why is that I would have thought gamers were used to downloading and installing straight straight off online And, and and are there any geographic differences in where that physical market still persists uh, it's more a sort of sector. It's it's done by segments. So I'd say, you know, if you look at the PC uh, gaming market, a vast majority, sort of 98, 99% is um, digital product. There's a few physical discs or, you know, DVD-based discs um, sold uh, for the um, in, in physical products. 
in the console space, it's it's been, I guess, the last stronghold for physical products in in the context of of games. Um, so there's still, you know, for uh, big release games, still, you know, forty to fifty percent, which is physical product. Um, a lot of it is gifted, uh, and during uh, you, you know the holiday season at the end of the year. Um, so you know, releases like I don't know, uh, big franchises like the FIFA football game that was often on the sort of Christmas shopping list for um, you know parents and grandparents for their for kids younger players and that's often bought in shops physical purchase I think what the pandemic has done is obviously exposed more people to the idea of uh, buying content digitally and I think that will have a knock-on impact in uh, and sort of accelerate the transition to digital uh, somewhat and um yeah i mean the other point to make really about the console space is and this is another reason why they've uh, you know done particularly well during the pandemic i think is that they have the capability really to get content from all forms of uh, sort of distribution channels so you know there is the physical uh, purchase of um, physical media and you know buying used games even so there's still um you know a relatively large market for used games but you can also download full games um and now you can even you know stream uh, those games from the cloud to consoles um, so they're well positioned really to take advantage of the transition but also flexible enough to engage audiences and users in the way that they want to get a hold of content so another area where COVID gave a boost to the next generation business model, I guess, you, you talk about digital retail reaching 67%, I think, in your commentary. Um, you touched on it earlier, subscription services. Um, and I understand that Sony and Microsoft lead there, whereas uh, you've already talked about Nintendo leading in the hardware sales race. So what what's going on there? What's Nintendo doing wrong in terms of subscription services? I mean, I think it's well established in the market that Nintendo has always been several years behind uh, both Microsoft and Sony. Microsoft kind of led the way with subscription services in in the console space. So it was the first to introduce a platform subscription service, so Xbox Live Gold, where users were uh, required to pay to get access to multiplayer and online activities on the platform. Sony eventually followed that with the PlayStation, well, towards the end of the PlayStation 3, and then made it, um, in effect, non-optional, well, sort of compulsory for multiplayer gaming on PlayStation 4. So that meant that their service revenues increased substantially because a lot of players, you know, they, they see that as a kind of necessity, really. Um, so that generates good money, recurring revenue streams for them to invest back into the online platforms, etc. Nintendo has been pretty late to the game. It's only really introduced uh, that type of service with Nintendo Switch Online. So the uh, introduction of Nintendo Switch is in 2017. So, and then Switch Online came uh, later, I think it came towards the end of 2018. It was monetized directly. So it's only been in the market for a few couple of years. On top of that, the other, uh, so Microsoft and Sony both have content subscription services, which they've now added to their platforms. So Microsoft has been very successful with Xbox Game Pass in its different um, tiers. Sony has another content subscription service called PlayStation Now. Nintendo does not have a content subscription service, so it's still just 
generating relatively small numbers from its platform subscription service. Um, so they're, they're kind of leading the way, really, uh, those other companies in comparison to Nintendo. And that's why, you know, the share of uh, subscription revenue from those other uh, other companies is larger than Nintendo. Interesting. Thanks, Pierce. Um, that is it. That is um, season two, episode seven of the AMP podcast. If you want to find out more, see more, analyze more, get over to Ampere Analysis. Dot com, where, as you've just heard, we've got a ton of exciting new data and metrics, including our new popularity measure for movie and TV titles, the latest insight on where the advertising markets are heading globally, and of course, brand new data in our game service developed by Piers and his team, which includes all sorts of data from console sales to title tracking to detailed consumer insight. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do join us again next time. And it just remains for me to say thank you very much to Hannah, Jack, Ed and Piers. And please do join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.